1: Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
2: Lessons from the world's top professors. Anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. You're listening to episode six of The Happiness Formula. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. And man, I am so happy you're here. Over the last few episodes, we've learned some of the principles of practical wisdom about avoiding extremes and knowing that there's a time and a place to be brutally honest. Today, we talk about finding happiness in the medical community. Barry takes us to a place where doctors treat their patients like their own children, using skills outside of medical school. I got to tell you, the results of their work are going to amaze you. Anyway, let's get started.
1: So let me begin by reminding you of what it is that makes work good. A lot of this comes from the discussion of PERMA, that positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement that are keys to to happiness, keys to well-being. So what makes work good is being engaged by it. That is really losing yourself in the task, immersing yourself, throwing yourself into the tasks that face you having some control and autonomy over when the work is done and how the work is done. This is important both because people like to have control over their lives and because having control over the work implies trust on the part of the people who supervise you. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to micromanage you. I trust that you know what the objective is and you'll find a way to achieve it. Meaning, being able to say at the end of the day that you've accomplished something that has some positive effect on the world. Relations with other people, social relations, and that can be coworkers or it can be customers and clients. Good relations with the people you work with and the people you work for are major contributors to satisfaction with work. Accomplishing something, actually feel like there's an achievement at the end of the day or at the end of the week that you can be proud of. And challenge. Achievements are nice, but they're not so nice when they're kind of trivial, when anyone could do it. If it requires overcoming obstacles and learning new things, and it feels much more significant and much more rewarding. So all of these features of work when work is good overlap substantially with the components of PERMA that uh, we talked about earlier. And so let me give you an example of wisdom at work, and I think this is an example that is really of profound importance in modern industrial affluent societies like the U.S. It concerns in medicine the current major problem that medicine faces in the developed world. And the problem that medicine faces is not curing disease because it has kind of figured out how to cure most diseases instead the problem medicine faces is in managing diseases that can't be cured managing hypertension managing diabetes managing obesity you know you're living with this as a patient and the question is what can be done by the doctor and what can be done by you To make this chronic condition tolerable, Uh, so it's not a serious threat to your longevity. And the thing to notice about chronic conditions is that there are real limits to what doctors can do, because for the most part, managing chronic conditions requires active participation from the patient. And often it requires active participation, doing things that patients find difficult to do. So here's an example. This concerns a middle-aged woman named Viba Gandhi, who was at the special care center in Atlantic City. She wouldn't be there if she were simply suffering from a sore throat or the flu, or had broken a bone that she needed set. Instead, the 57-year-old FIBA was there because she suffered from multiple chronic conditions. She had diabetes. She was obese. She had congestive heart failure. She had suffered her third heart attack, and her coronary artery disease was so advanced that it couldn't be operated. When she arrived at the clinic in a wheelchair for her first visit, she would lose her breath and suffer severe chest pain after taking only a few steps. A heart transplant is often the next step in such cases. What was she doing in a place like the Special Care Center, which was a primary care clinic, not a high-tech place, with two physicians, two nurse practitioners, a full-time social worker, a front desk receptionist, and eight full-time health coaches. Well, this clinic, which was one of a number of primary care centers discussed by Atul Gawande in a magazine article, this clinic focuses on a special kind of primary care that has been emerging increasingly in the U.S. in recent years. These centers aim to provide an alternative to hospital emergency rooms for patients with complex medical conditions and few economic resources, patients who often incur some of the highest costs in America's healthcare system. Emergency rooms might be just the thing if you're hit by a car, but they're not adequate for patients with complex chronic problems. The 40 year old with drug and alcohol addiction. The 84 year old with advanced Alzheimer's disease and pneumonia. The 60 year old with heart failure, obesity, gout, and a bad memory for keeping track of his 11 medications. And a half dozen specialists, each recommending different tests and procedures. Uh, it's like arriving at a major construction project with nothing but a screwdriver and a crane. In other words, emergency rooms are not the place, the right place for treating these kind of chronic conditions. Anyway, Viva Gandhi credits this clinic for her great health improvement. She still has a purse full of medications for her fragile condition, but a year and a half after becoming a clinic patient, she's out of her wheelchair, she can walk a quarter of a mile at a time with her walker. I didn't think I would live this long, she said. I didn't want to live. But she had her husband, Bharat, credit, changes in diet, exercise, strict monitoring of her diabetes, and subtle medication adjustments. In interviewing her, Gowande wanted to know why she didn't follow such standard advice after her first two heart attacks. What made the difference this time? He wanted to know. Viva said, Shri, naming the health coach who had previously worked at Dunkin' Donuts, but who speaks the same Indian language that she does. Shri pushes her and she listens to her only and not to me. Why do you listen to Shri? Guandi asked. Because she talks like my mother. Viba said. The special care center in Atlantic City was organized by Rishika Fernandopoul, a young Harvard internist. Fernandopoul carefully tracked the statistics of the 1,200 patients who use the clinic. After 12 months in the program, he found, Their emergency room visits and hospital admissions were reduced by more than 40%. Surgical procedures were down by a quarter. The patients were also much healthier. Among 500 patients with high blood pressure, only two had poor blood pressure control. Patients with high cholesterol had on average a 50 point drop in their cholesterol levels a stunning 63% of smokers with heart and lung disease had quit smoking. In other words, this clinic, staffed by very low-tech primary care physicians and nurse practitioners and health coaches, was doing what the massive medical industrial complex of high-tech American medicine was not. In setting up the clinic, the doctors got the counsel of uh, another doctor named Jeffrey Brenner, who had pioneered a similar clinic in Camden, New Jersey, about an hour away from Atlantic City. And one of Brenner's aha moments was meeting and treating a patient named Frank Hendricks. He had asked, Brenner had asked emergency room doctors and social workers in Camden, to introduce him to one of the worst of the worst patients. Hendricks was that person. He had spent as much time in hospitals as out of them during the last three years. He had a history of alcohol abuse. He smoked. He weighed 560 pounds. He had uncontrolled diabetes, heart failure, and chronic asthma. Dr. Brenner visited with him daily while Hendrix was in intensive care with a feeding tube, having developed t- toxic shock from a gallbladder infection, Hendrix was a mess. So Brenner says, I just basically sat in his room like I was a third year medical student, hanging out with him for an hour or an hour and a half every day, trying to figure out what makes the guy tick. He learned that Hendrix used to be an auto detailer and a cook. He had a longtime girlfriend and two children, now grown. A toxic combination of poor health, too much alcohol, and it, as it emerged, cocaine addiction had left Hendrix unreliably employed, uninsured, and living in a welfare motel. He had no regular set of doctors, and he had almost no prospects for turning his health around. Hendrix recovered enough to be discharged from the hospital after a few months, but his life was just another hospitalization waiting to happen. And Brenner, Dr. Brenner, tried to figure out what he could do to help. He followed Hendrix closely enough to spot serious problems emerging. He double checked that the plans and the prescriptions from specialists actually fit together. He sorted things out by phone when they didn't. He teamed up with a nurse practitioner who made home visits to check blood pressure and blood sugar levels and to make sure that Hendrix was taking his medications. Brenner also went beyond what you might call the usual doctor stuff to address some of the conditions that made Hendricks' health issues worse. He teamed up with a social worker, to help Hendricks get disability insurance so he could afford a stable place to stay instead of the chaos of welfare hotels, and thus to enable Hendricks to have access to a consistent group of physicians who would know him and his case. They got Hendricks to go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. They urged him to start cooking his own food and to return to church. He described himself as a devout Christian. The aim was to fight Hendrix's helplessness by finding some sources of stability and value in his life. He had given up. Can you imagine being in a hospital for that long? What that does to you? Brenner wondered. Now, a few years after Brenner started treating Hendrix, he found... Hendricks had not had a drink for a year, had not had cocaine for two years, had quit smoking three years ago. He was living with his girlfriend in a safer neighborhood. He was going to church. He was weathering various family crises. He had started cooking his own meals. His diabetes and congestive heart failure were under much better control. He'd lost 220 pounds, which meant, among other things, that if he fell, he'd be able to pick himself up rather than having to call for an ambulance. Brenner said working with him didn't feel any different from working with any patient on smoking bad diet and not exercising, working on any particular rut that someone has gotten into. People are people and they get into situations they don't necessarily plan on my philosophy about primary care is that the only person who has changed anyone's life is their mother. The reason is that she cares about them and she says the same simple thing over and over again. And so what Brenner is trying to do is care for patients in the way their mothers cared for them and say the same few simple things over and over again. For this, you don't need a medical school degree. For this, you need empathy, good listening, and real concern for the welfare of patients. The thing about this kind of care, the thing about the care that mothers and fathers provide to their children is that it's what might be called high-touch care, lots of personal attention, provided by a caretaker. Parents provide high-touch care without even thinking about it. For doctors, it's a deliberate decision and one for which they have had extremely little preparation. In addition, mothers and fathers care about everything that affects the welfare of their children. Unlike most physicians, they don't wall off physical health from other aspects of well-being. Their care is directed at the whole person and not just at the organic machinery inside the person. And so what Brenner was trying to do is substitute an analog of parental care, a loved one care, health coach care, someone who understands me care for the high tech impersonal care that has come to dominate practice in American medicine. Now, patients like Viva Gandhi and Frank Hendricks are particularly complex with multiple chronic illnesses that require extensive and expensive medical care. Although they constitute only a small fraction of all the people needing healthcare in the US, the kinds of chronic conditions they face are quite common. And partly, this is a direct result of medicine's extraordinary ability to treat acute diseases successfully, at least in the developed world. The success treating acute disease keeps people alive longer, but longevity makes people ripe for all of these chronic diseases, diseases that must be managed rather than cured. And treatment for these illnesses demands something beyond pill, surgery, chemotherapy, and so on. It demands that patients become partners in their own care. It demands often that patients make extremely difficult life changes. And treatment as life change has become increasingly common in the United States, as modern medicine has become less and less about responding to acute conditions and more and more about managing chronic conditions. Arthritis, congestive heart failure, hypertension, obesity, diabetes, AIDS, low back pain, osteoporosis. Patients who feel vulnerable, frightened, hopeless, depressed, and confused somehow must be encouraged to participate actively in often extremely arduous life changes. Quit smoking, lose weight, eat more fiber, avoid salt and fat, exercise, stop drinking. A doctor could diagnose a chronic condition and know exactly what the patient has to do to mitigate its effects. The doctor could hand the patient a printed sheet of instructions, and the doctor would know that only a tiny handful of patients would follow those instructions. Indeed, the doctor would know that most patients already have these instructions burned inside their heads. What is it that patients can reasonably be expected to do as partners in treatment? This is not the right question. The right question is what can this patient, this particular patient sitting in front of me be reasonably expected to do?
2: Well, it's time for a quick break. But when we come back, Barry tells us what he sees as the future of medicine.
3: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com
0: strategic. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
1: Doctors and nurses need to assess what a particular patient can manage, how to motivate the particular patient. Is it feasible to tell this patient that she needs to lose 50 pounds or that she needs to walk at a brisk pace for 30 minutes a day? Will it do any good to tell him he needs to lower the stress level of his job? Knowing how to treat patients demands balancing what is medically sound with what a patient can and will do, and that demands understanding the perspective and life circumstances of the patient. What's right for one patient may be disastrous for another. In other words, to practice good medicine, a doctor must know her patient. This is why effective medicine Must be high touch medicine. This is why effective medicine must be wisely practiced medicine. This kind of care demands medical practitioners with the capacity to do the kind of relationship building that Dr. Brenner and their staff are doing. And this, in turn, will demand organizing medical clinics that encourage practitioners to learn how to provide this kind of care and also designing medical schools to encourage young doctors to learn how to give this kind of care from the beginning. What kind of capacities do doctors need to give this kind of care? Well, according to Brenner, what they need is obviously good medical knowledge and skills. But they need the capacity to build long term relationships with their patients. They need for their patients to see them as friends or as family members. She sounds like my mother. Remember that quote from the first patient I talked about. Doctors like this need to be caring and compassionate, they need to be careful in how they treat and how they counsel. They need to be honest enough so that patients can trust what they say and use the information the doctor provides to make important choices about how to manage their care. They need to be loyal to have their patients' backs. They need to be patient. They need to have the resilience and courage to face their fears of angry reactions patients, of failures with patients, of obstinate superiors with the power to sanction them when things go wrong. They need to be empathetic, to listen well to how patients see the world and understand their thoughts and their feelings. They need to balance engagement and caring about the welfare of patients with being objective enough and detached enough and firm enough to convince or insist, either gently or firmly, that patients change the way they live. Change their drinking, their smoking, their drugs, their overeating, and so on. Things that are extremely difficult to change. So this is what it takes to be a good doctor when the doctor's task is managing chronic conditions. And increasingly, Managing chronic conditions is the ball game in developed societies like the one in the U.S. And an extraordinarily high percentage of the total health care costs faced in the United States is spent on a very small fraction of all the patients. So if you can manage with high touch medicine to reduce usage of the healthcare system by people with multiple chronic conditions, you will dramatically reduce health care costs in the United States, not with a technical solution, but with an empathic, wise, interpersonally caring and concerned solution. So what I'm suggesting is that good medicine as good work Needs to be wise medicine because good medicine is managing the whole person and not the organ systems in that person that seem to be failing. Our medical schools don't teach doctors how to do this. The insurance companies don't pay doctors for doing this. It's hard to find clinicians like Dr. Brenner and clinics like his clinic, but this and not high tech is almost certainly where the future of medicine lies as we get better and better at treating acute problems. And this is where the future of medical training ought to lie if we're going to be producing doctors who are good at providing this kind of care. And incidentally, if doctors find that they are able to provide this kind of care, the structure of the institutions they work in allows high-touch medicine, they will be a lot more satisfied with the work they do than the medical professionals currently are.
2: Thank you so much for listening to Episode 6. Next time, how so few workplaces are focused on keeping their employees happy and engaged, even though it's costing them money. The Happiness Formula from One Day University is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more.
3: This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually